are listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. But now, it's time for this week's interview. Here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys for Monday the 26th of September. This is episode number 30. My guest on today's podcast is Ian Sutherland from the UK. Now, Ian is the crime fiction author of the Brodie Taylor thriller series, and these are novels that expose the darker side of the online world to dramatic and suspenseful effect. Exploiting knowledge gained from his career in the IT industry, Ian's thrillers caution readers on how dangerous the internet can be for the unwary. Ian also takes advantage of his experience in technology in the way that he uses social media to help to drive awareness of his books. With over 100,000 followers on Twitter, and that's on just one of his accounts, and that number is still growing, Ian has figured out how to make Twitter power his book marketing strategies. He shares many of his techniques in advanced Twitter strategies for authors, his first non-fiction book. When I spoke to Ian, I started by asking him what made him start to write fiction in the first place. Uh, I've been at it, ooh, yeah, I have been at it some time. I think uh, if you ask my wife, she said I was writing my first book for about 10 years. But uh, realistically, I think I, when I really knuckled down, it, was, uh, it took two years to, to start and finally complete what became my uh, my first novel which I released in August 2014 which is pretty much two years ago almost to the day as we took as we talk what then was the struggle for you with getting that first book written what were the blocks uh, I'm a terrible procrastinator um, and it's quite interesting the the forms of pro- procrastination that you, you you trick yourself into can be quite varied uh, it's, it turned out that one of my favorite forms of procrastination, which made me feel like I was doing writing, was reading books about the craft. So uh, I would be quite happily you know, reading books about writing. And, and, and as long as you're doing that and you're thinking about your, your own story or your own novel, you feel like you're writing and you're not actually doing anything. And I, I was doing that for years. Fortunately, um, some of what I read obviously stayed in because uh, the the book I wrote has been, been very well received, thank God. Um, but uh, procrastination, I think, was the, is, is, the, is the biggest thing. I just kept finding other things to do, and, uh, which is a form of time management. So time management became the, uh, became the, key, the key attribute. And I read you've been doing this or trying to write a book for around 20 years or so. When you'd have started trying to write a book, there would have been no self-publishing. It would have been only traditional publishing. Did, did the change in the publishing landscape encourage you along the way? Uh, kind of. I think, actually, no, I think it was more coincidental, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I, you're right. I have been um, thinking and, and attempting this at various times over the years. Uh, you know, I subscribed to Writers Monthly for, for years and years and years and you know the advice back in the day was you know shop a manuscript around or the first three chapters and and so on and so on and then when I finally knuckled down and, and what actually happened for me is a, a guy I worked with um, he he just announced one day that he he was having a book published and at that point I think that was when it sort of really hit me he'd, he'd actually done it done it secretly I didn't even know and I worked very closely with him and so uh, I decided to knuckle down and from, from that from that stage on I then got on with it but um, by the time I'd finished 
the the sort of the indie revolution was kind of really beginning, and uh, the the opportunity to to go direct was there, and I didn't even consider um, shopping the manuscript around to publishers or agents. I just uh, I just went straight for it. Um, I think my uh, I have a I'm not scared of technology, so uh, I think it's uh, it helped me uh, that all this was going on and you could take control yourself. And so uh, I thought, you know what, let's go for it. So I did it that way. Yeah, you know, there's always a part in me. I, I'm completely indie through and through. If you cut me through like a piece of rock, I'd be, I'd say indie. But the vanity part of me would still quite like to get a bite from a publisher. I'd still be interested in that, even though I might say no. Are you the same with that, or do you, does it just not interest you at all? It, it doesn't really interest me. The, the piece that, you know, the piece that you'd love um for kudos with all your friends and family is to you know to walk into waterstones or wh smith and your book to be there on the shelf and that that's the that's really the piece that the most indies miss out on which is the, the ability to actually you know see your book in bookshops particularly across the across the country and uh um, i've i've resigned myself to to that actually being okay and i'm i'm quite i'm quite cool with it because um i've put a lot of time and effort into the marketing and i'm getting uh lots and lots of sales and take up and reviews and so on without you know without it being in the bookshop so i'm okay with it um you know i think some of my friends and family would love to see it in the bookshop but uh, but I, I i'm okay so i haven't really considered um ever looking at the uh the traditional uh publishing side of the world um and i think i'm, I'm i think i've gone too far <laughs> to, <laughs> on the indie side to to really uh i'd be a handful for them that's for sure yeah, you're too deep in now by the looks of it. Yeah, yeah and you're doing a very good job of it. And we'll talk. I want to talk to you uh, uh, quite a lot in this interview about some of the geeky stuff because you're doing some lovely geeky stuff, and I want to explore it. Let's keep talking about the writing for now, though, because I want to know um, when you wrote the first book, what the writing process looked like for you. Because you're you're at work, you've got a day job, I think, haven't you? Yes, I do, and I still do. Um, so it, it took a while to to figure out, and and I'd read as I as, you, as I said earlier, I'd read all of those books on the on the craft of writing and um i i'm i'm naturally a uh, a plotter not a panster so um i write thrillers and they're quite uh, uh convoluted lots of twists and, and all of those kind of things and so there was no way for me to to really do uh to create the suspense and the reveals and the and the shocks and the surprise and the twists without plotting so i, I i'm very much a plotter and i created a a um an outline all the way through right at the beginning beginning um i discovered scrivener perfect timing i love scrivener um and i know you use it so um i um i used that for my outlining process that worked really really well and then from then on the way i the way i i work is, is i i have all of the scenes i know the ending and i you know i do it to a fair decent you know a fair amount of detail um but then as i'm approaching a scene i i'll i'll generally go on ahead a few, few scenes and and start in note form you know uh maybe Picking out the the more, the more of the detail, you know, maybe the flow of the conversation if there's two characters talking, that kind of thing. And then as I then get to the actual writing of the scene, it's already pretty much laid out for me, and it's a bit like colouring in the lines, you know. Um, and uh, so I can quite quickly uh, create the, the the whole scene and then know that it's full of integrity with the with the rest of the book. That said, I still suffer like most authors do with characters going off on their own 
own and coming up with new ideas on the, on their own and uh, not not refusing to do what I'd planned for them to do and and generally they're always right so <laughs> I then have to adapt the rest of the outline but that's well, that's just the way it works for me. What does a writing session look like for you? Do you write by numbers, you know, with a word quota, or do you write until you've done the thing? I generally write. I don't do word count, although because I'm towards the end of a, a book at the moment and I've got a deadline set by my editor, I am desperately looking at, at, at word count um, each day for the first time ever, really. Um, but uh, no, I don't normally do it. I just write for this. I write the scene and then I'm happy. And if I want to write another scene, I'll, I'll carry on. Um, but uh, because of the day job, and you know, many of us still have uh, have day jobs. For me, it's uh, it's an evening thing. So my uh, my approach is to um, start as early as I can after dinner, and I put on headphones, and I'll I'll work. I can work anywhere as long as I've got a laptop and uh, the and an internet connection. Um, then and headphones, and I can work anywhere. And I put the headphones on, and I play music, usually um, film scores, that kind of thing. And uh, and I can just switch off from the the world around me but I'm still physically in the same world you know my family's there and they can tap, tap me on the shoulder if they want to talk to me so I don't separate myself too much from my family because otherwise because writing as you know is a it's a very solitary profession so it's the uh, that's the way I make it work with my with the uh, requirements of the rest of my life you mentioned the e-word editor there when you've written a book yourself how much time will you spend raking through the words that you've written and at what point will you send that to your editor to look at I will go through and try and get it as best as I can I I generally write a fairly clean draft and that's because I have I do the one thing that most people recommend you don't do and that is I clean up as I go I go back and tinker with scenes Um, I start a writing session by pretty much polishing the scene I've written the uh, the the day before and then going into uh, continued writing and um, so by the time I get to the end it's not too bad I will go through and make sure that the uh, the overall flow works and the continuity works. I can use Scrivener to drag and drop scenes around, maybe maybe move the order of a couple of things if I can, if it still works for the plot. And then then I'll generate the uh, the manuscript and uh, and send it over to my editor. So you said you've got a deadline to hit. This presumably is the editor's deadline in that they've got to get your book moved on and then move on to the next one. Is that so? It's not a self-imposed deadline, but that's the deadline presumably. Yeah, because if I had a self-imposed deadline, I'd fail to meet it. Um, unfortunately, I'm not one of those people. I, I, I know if it's my own deadline, I'll I'll just ignore it, and so there's no deadline. It's not real. Um, and in this in this case, my uh, my editor, I've been posting a few uh, notes on uh, on my website and uh, and Facebook and so on that I had this book coming up towards the end of the year and I hadn't even told her about it and so she contacted me <laughs> and said do you actually want me to do you actually want me to do this and I said well of course and she said well I haven't got any availability till January well that's too late <laughs> anyway so we had a, we had a little negotiation and she said well I can get you in at the uh, the beginning of September so uh, that gave me the deadline and do you know what I'm going to do this next time for sure I'm going to set it a lot earlier and uh, work book her in um, right at the beginning of the book because um, I work to a deadline. I know I work well to a deadline if it's a real one. And have you ever thought of doing um, pre-release dates on Amazon to, because they penalise you if you miss the deadline? That's a really good focal point. I nearly did. I nearly did that a few months ago, and I'm glad I didn't because um, I was being too optimistic and fooling myself. I'm I'm prepared to do it now. You know, I'm I'm what about twenty five thousand words away from the end of the book. I'll get it done over the next two weeks, um, and so I'm prepared to put up the uh, the pre-order. And, 
And actually, the other thing as part of that, I've only uh, yesterday received the um, the first concept of the cover design. Um, so the cover design will probably be complete this week, and that that means I really will be um, showing off the cover and uh, putting it up on on all of the uh, on all of the sites. The only one I'm considering holding back on actually is Amazon. Uh, I, I'm I've gone wide, so I'm on all the platforms: Kobo, iTunes, Google, and so on. Um, and on those ones, there's no penalty. You can you can put your book up ahead of time. All the pre-orders count, and then they'll count again in terms of any ranking on their sites on the day. Um, but Amazon pre-orders are great, and you can have them. Um, but the uh, they don't they, they won't influence your rank your ranking um, on the day of release at all. And so I'm I'm probably not going to pre-order on Amazon. I'll probably just launch it at the time, and that's because I've been busy building a mailing list, and I can use that to um, to drive the uh, drive the. Do- demand as soon as possible after launch you mentioned the covers there i think the artwork on your covers is is very startling it's very strong and your covers look like they would sit very comfortably on waterstone's shelves how'd you get those done it's interesting i had them redone um about uh four or five maybe even six months ago now um by stuart bach he's the guy that uh, mark dawson uses and i liked i liked his covers and so the the issue I had, I had um, other covers designed by Peter O'Connor, and I believe you've, I think you've already interviewed him, or you're going to soon. And yes. Peter did some wonderful covers for me right back in in the early launch, and you know they really were good, um, and I love them. And in paperback format, I think I think they're even even stronger. But the issue I had was one, he he was working to my brief, and my brief at the time was uh, these are the, the the thrillers I write. Uh, there's a lot of cybercrime in them, so there's kind of kind of a lot of technical content, and I made him include a lot of that on the cover design. And uh, uh, what I've discovered since um, you know trying to trying to market the books over t- time is that the people who read them aren't necessarily the 20 to 30 year old blokes that I thought would want to read them. You know, my my readership. Uh, if you look at if if my Facebook book ads tell me anything they tell me but that uh it's it's mainly middle-aged women <laughs> that are my 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 demographic and i could see in my reviews that i had a lot of reviews that said i'm really glad i read this book it was great um or but i wouldn't normally and, and the, the wouldn't normally was normally because of the the technical content and so in the book and that because that was front and center on the cover design and in the blurbs the original versions of the blurbs i was actually putting a lot of people off and so, uh, in the end, I decided I need to bite the bullet on this, and I um, I had the covers redesigned, and I and I gave them a much more contemporary thriller look, which is what which is what you're referring to, um, and I changed the blurb around so that it it really plays down the uh, the cybercrime content, focuses much more on the murder mystery side, the serial killer side, and as a result of that, it, the the books have just taken off. So it is is the great thing about indie is that we we have the opportunity to tweak and change and uh, and that's something i've taken full advantage of yeah it's very strong i really like them and, and one of the trends seems to be it's interesting that you say it's mark dawson's because mark dawson uses that solitary figure looking into a well you've got sort of cityscapes in yours and he uses different uh, you know landscape images but it's the same solitary figure i see this quite a lot on the covers did you go for that intentionally or is that just Stuart's style it's just if you actually look at the at Stuart's covers they're they're very wide ranging but because of of the briefs I gave him, the kind of, I think I was probably influenced by the kind of example covers I gave him that I thought worked. Um, and the fact that I was looking for something quite contemporary, 
Marie. He he just came up with that, and and for me it really works. Um, it 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 kind of it it tells you it's a thriller, and it sits nicely amongst its peers, and that's the main job <laughs> of the cover, particularly in a thumbnail. It works with the the contrast in the in the colours of the particularly in the invasion of privacy with the the red. You obviously <laughs> people listening just can't see it, but there's an image of a lady all in red, and everything else around it's blue, and it just it, the contrast really works well. Um, when it's a thumbnail on Amazon, it really stands out. It looks fantastic. The the um, the red cover looks fantastic on your website. I love it. It's really really nice. Uh, but we'll come to that in a moment because I'm still talking to you about the writing, trying to keep on the writing. That's okay. You're writing techno thrillers, and and as you said, you thought that that would attract younger guys, and here you are. You've got middle aged ladies who who love it still. So does does it? I mean, you don't get tangled up in technology, presumably. It's just a vehicle for a great thriller, I assume. Yeah, and and I realise also what I've learned is that. Techno thrillers are um, techno thrillers mean a lot mean different things to different people. You know, uh, the, the master of the techno thriller is someone like Michael Crichton, and uh, those, those are much more science fiction. And you know, often they're set in the modern world or or a very near future modern world, but they're they're, they're much more like science fiction. And what I wanted to do was very much write uh, technology based thrillers that that you know are you very much use contemporary. Um, technology I, I have a, a background in IT so I'm you know playing to the classic write what you know and of course the problem with that is I've, I've created a general story which is a classic murder mystery serial killer police procedural that's that's what I've written but the hook or the the difference um, was to to use technology and cybercrime to be to be the uh, the backdrop of it and um, and so my so I'm whilst I I seem to be a techno thriller writer I'm much more or of just a general thriller writer, you know, and uh, you take someone like um, Jeffrey Deaver, um, who's one of the authors I, I, I very much aspire to for his, uh, for his page turning and his, uh, his twists and so on. Um, each of his books, it's a murder mystery, but there's always something specialist either about the, the plot or the, usually the, uh, the killer or the, um, and uh, that makes it, really detailed in some kind of technical way could be anything from um you know i remember one about a a guy who killed people through you know playing with the the power grid around electricity and you've got a whole massive education around that that isn't anywhere on the cover or on the blurb and, and yet you're learning about it and i guess that's what i've ended up doing so actually i now market the books very much as traditional um thriller police procedurals murder mystery serial killer that kind of thing but the the thing that differentiates it is the is the cyber crime element so i'm actually playing down the techno thriller side if you like because um I, I, it's also a smaller market it's interesting that you say that because one of the things I've, I've been teaching technology in various guises since about the year i think 2001 i did it for the first time and in those days your average person would come and they'd hold a mouse and they'd hold it in the air and say why isn't it working and then nowadays when i teach i go to to uh, predominantly mid- middle-aged business people and they all know how to find a wireless code and you know how to put the password and they all know how to do things so i've seen the actual base level of technological understanding rocket in the last 10 years so do, do you not think many expects it's such a big part of our lives now it's actually not that alien to many people no it's not and and actually people are generally quite comfortable with it um and so and even you know in my books I, you know there's a scene for example where i uh where I teach you accurately 
um, how to hack into someone's encrypted Wi-Fi, <laughs> right. and the techniques that um, that the uh, the bad guy uses to do that are actually completely real and realistic. You know, and so I get a lot of credit from people who are technical for uh, being so accurate in in the way I present the technology. But for those that you know aren't really into it, that kind of deep packet level then um they either as they tell me in their reviews they'll either skim that part or or they actually go oh that's great i've learned something from here and so i get i get the whole range and you see that in the reviews i get but the important piece which is which is you know paramount is that they love the characters they love the story they love the twists and that technology piece just stays in the background as a there's a secondary sort of bonus for anyone who, who really likes it now, I want to talk to you about your novella, because I, I've got to write a novella before the end of the year, and I haven't written one before. Uh, what to you is a novella, and what special challenges does it give you as an author when you've just written a, a full-length book? Uh, so, given that you're deliberately, I think you're deliberately writing a novella to do what I've done, which is to have something as a kind of a prequel to draw people in as like a, maybe a reader magnet if you're giving it away for free. And uh, in my case, what actually happened is I wrote the my my uh, debut novel, which is called Invasion of Privacy. And uh, during the editing, and I, it's a big book. I mean, the, uh, the, the published version is 160,000 words, which is massive. And, um, and for a thriller, it's, you know, again, a, a, a traditional publish house, publishing house would probably turn the nose up at that and, and ask me to edit it right down. Um, but actually, it's still a, it, it works. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a page turner all the way through. So people really like it and they get immersed in this world. But it was even bigger than that <laughs> when I, well, at, the, at the first draft. And so I, I edited out quite a lot. And there was a, a 10,000-word prologue, which I, in the end, I bit the bullet and edited out. And I replaced it with a, a similar kind of scene, but, but you know, done in 3,000 words and they achieved all the same objectives which is the smart thing to do and so i got into the, the meat of the story in the debut novel more quickly but i still had this ten thousand word kind of standalone scene taken out and i thought you know i could do something with this and so in the end i you know racked my brains for a while and i ended up wrapping a parallel story around it and then breaking it up into pieces and there was a sort of a time lapse between the two the two stories and one led to the other so that there was a convergence and um with a big twist at the end and i managed to get a 20 to 25 i can't remember what was that twenty five thousand word novella um out of it and uh it worked really well and so i had this and, and i did it deliberately and i and when i when i launched uh uh, invasion of privacy two years ago i actually launched the the, uh, the, the novella at the exact on the exact same day so I, I actually launched with with both together and i made the novella free um and it worked very well as a as a reader magnet and which is a term i learned uh, since of course i didn't know that term at the time but um it worked very well to draw people into the world and those that, that liked um the the main character um quite happily went on to to buy the um to, you know, to take it, you know, it's a great way for people to take a chance on an, on an unknown author or a debut author. So they then went on to read the, the main book and I get a good conversion rate going from one to the other. And do you do all the, the marketing bits and pieces like having sign up to my mailing list and, and read the next book promos in, in the developer? Yeah, yeah, I do all of that. Um, although, you know, if I look at the version I put out and the formatting back in two years ago, it, you know, it was all there, but it wasn't as good as it could be. And it was going to a standard MailChimp form at the time. And, 
you know, but it still it did all the right things. But I I didn't focus on mailing lists in the early days, really. And uh, it was something I, I came to really in the last year, uh, nine months in particular. Um, and, you know, it's a shame because I've had a year of missing of missing uh, email addresses. But uh, c'est la vie. Um, I'm, I'm making up for it now. <laughs> and you've got a an audio book version of Invasion of Privacy. How did that come about? So it was part of my strategy to, to go wide. You know, I, like I said, I've gone on to, I did do KDB Select with Invasion of Privacy for the first um, six months, but I, I wasn't buying it. I, I didn't like the idea of being locked into one platform. So I've, I've gone wide from the beginning. Um, and as part of that, I, you know, I, I listen. I think it's partly because I do listen to a lot of audiobooks, and so I'm, I'm, I'm a def, I, I read and I enjoy these days. I enjoy audiobooks more as a writer. When I'm reading something with my eyes, I'm forever dissecting the words and how they, how the author has done what they've done. But as an audiobook listener, I, I do less of that, and I, I therefore enjoy the book a lot more. And so um, I, I think it's because of all that. I, I wanted to have an audiobook, and so I went through the whole. ACX process. I did the, uh, you know, collected auditions. I had um, seven or eight auditions, and I found the guy. Um, he was brilliant. He's a Royal Shakespeare Company actor, and um, he's chomping at the bit to do the next one. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I, it was an enjoyable process. But I'm now, what am I? Just over a year from having published the audiobook version, and because I didn't do it on a royalty split, and I paid for it. I'm still making back the investment I I put into that in terms of paying for the uh, for the narration. So I you know I'll probably it'll probably break even in about three to six months if I carry on at the way the way it's going, which is great, and then it's there forever. But um, it is a fair investment, particularly when you've written a book that's 160,000 words that actually converts into 16 hours. <laughs> so yeah. and you pay per finished hour. You didn't do the um the old rev share thing. You paid for it up front. That's actually how I did mine interestingly because you've got to sign your life away with ACX for 7 years, haven't you? Yeah, I, I did the ACX anyway because, you know, I, I as an audible customer myself, I know that it seems to me that most people get their books through there. Yes, there's I tunes and yes there are other platforms but if you want to have the reach you want it on audible you want to really want to be on audible um and although i don't you, you have no control over pricing which is you know i find quite frustrating um you you are going to get your biggest um readership listenership maybe uh listenership <laughs> through um through audible than any other platform and therefore for me maximizing the the return in terms of the percentage I get per per uh, audiobook was important, which is why I went through the ACX process and in the end uh, uh, chose to not do a 50-50 royalty share. How did audiobookreviewer.com work for you? Has it made any impact? I hadn't heard of that one. That's all. I just spotted you on it. I uh, I think I contacted them um, and they were they were great. They did they did one. They did the review. There was another site. I, maybe it's the same one, and I can't remember off the. T- top of my head that I used though where I could use because when you release a book on audio through audible or through AC, through ACX they'll they'll give you 25 uh, codes for free that you can give out to people um, and to actually from what I understand if you just go back and ask for more they'll keep giving you more and so you can get your book out in the hands of people who who listen and review audiobooks and I found a site maybe it's that one um, who have a process whereby they'll you can then you can put your book up and then people will contact you if they are interested in, in listening to your book and giving a review and then you send them the, the code and that worked really, really well and it gave 
a real boost in the in right in the right as I launched that audiobook, it gave a real boost. It gave it the reviews, um, and obviously the reviews on the on the Amazon site you you see on Audible anyways. So that re- that side of it really helped. I need to ask about Ingram Spark as well, Ian, because I spotted a very nicely produced video uh, of you being interviewed by Ingram Spark. What's the story behind that one? Yeah, um, so the Ingram Spark thing actually came through uh, being a member of the Alliance of Independent Authors. And last year they did a um, uh, book, uh, what did they call it? Um, anyway, a, a big day on the back of uh, London Book Fair, and uh, we had a we had a day in foils where, which is kind of weird, you know, a bunch of indie authors having a uh, having a uh, an author day, selling their books to anyone who came in the middle of foils, and it was, uh, it was quite strange. It's the nearest I've got to having my book in a bookshop. You did see normal people walking by outside, looking through, going, "What what's going on in there?" Anyway, so uh, and as part of that, Ingrid Spark came along, and uh, they 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 were great. They um, and called. Of course, when you do something like that, it's nearly all printed books, and so they're obviously that's what they promote. And uh, they they'd offer to do uh, interviews um, with uh, with authors as part of that. Um, so I I agreed that up front, and and we did it. And and they're they're really kind. They gave they gave me the actual MP3 video. I've been able to put that up on my Amazon profile in the states, and and uh, um, I've been able to use it on my website in different ways. You know, it's been really good and you know and and that they covered the cost so that that was uh that was very kind of them um and then kobo did a similar thing uh this year at london book fair um so i got interviewed at london book fair and then that that's gone out on their channels and i actually haven't reused it yet but i can so it's very good that's very, that's very nice. Actually, you just reminded me of a question I meant to ask you earlier when you said that you go wide. Do you list your books directly on Kobo and, and iBooks, or do you go through something like Draft the Digital or Smashwords? I go, if I can go direct, I will. And the number one reason is you've got absolute control of how your book is um, presented and if there's keywords you want to use. If you go through Draft the Digital or Smashwords, as I do for other sites, um, you've got much less control. So... I go direct to Kobo, uh, Google Play. Like you, I got in before the uh, before they mm-hmm. shut it down to authors, and um, iTunes, um, Amazon. Yeah, Smashwords, Draft Digital. After that, yeah. Do, do you sell anything on Google Play? Uh, Google Play, very few. Very few. If I'm running a promotion, then you can see the the, the spillover in there. And when I'm doing Facebook ads, okay, even though I'm pushing people to Amazon, I still I do see the odd spillover into Google, but it's 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 very small. You know, I I love it. I get the like you know we all get the you called it the Amazon payday. Um, you know, at the same time, occasionally Google will come through with it with a, with a few pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've yet to sell one on Google Play. I don't think I've ever sold one on Google Play. So I'm obviously listing the wrong thing or doing you know, doing the wrong things. The one that works really well for me is Kobo. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty well on Kobo, and part of that. Uh, is because I've, I've built a relationship with with them. I now have uh, I don't know if you quite if it's as grand a term as an account manager, but certainly someone who I um, have a good uh, personal relationship over email with. And uh, again, I met them at the London Book Fair and had the interview. And as a result of that, I'm able to get involved in their promotions. And again, if you went through Draft Digital or um, uh, Smashwords to Kobo, then you will absolutely miss out on the ability to use their promotion. And they've created a, quite over the last few months. They've created a new capability that even Amazon doesn't do, where they run on all sorts of different promotions that you can 
join in well you can apply to be part of and uh, if they select you um, then um, then you'll it all happens magically in the background and you can just uh, run with it it's very good apologies for jumping around a little bit I, we started talking about ingram spark and i went on a little circuit and i want to come back to ingram spark again because i just wanted to check with you are you publishing the paperbacks through create space or ingram spark or both both <laughs> so again um the generally accepted recommended way to do this stuff is on paperbacks is to do create space um for amazon and and to do Ingram Spark for expanded distribution, um, and the the logic behind this is if you if you do it that way, um, Amazon is more likely to treat you nicely and help you on the rankings and, and everything else um, because it's their business. Create Space is owned by Amazon, um, and b- bookstores are more likely to uh, not ignore you because you're coming through Lightning Source, which is which Ingram Spark is part of, rather than CreateSpace, who most bookstores see as the enemy because it's part of Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so you have ISBNs then if you've gone through Ingram Spark? Yes, I've been through the ISBN process. I don't ever want to do it again, but I've only got seven left, so I'm going to have to at some point. One more writing question then before we move on to the, uh, to the, to the geeky stuff. Um, uh, it, so in terms of your next book, what's the plan for that? When is that going to be released? So I'm just finishing it now. Now, as you, we talked about my deadline earlier, um, the book is called Taking Up Serpents, which is quite an interesting title. Ooh. It works on many levels, and uh, it's going to be out in October, and I'm saying that very confidently um, because I'm near the end. The editor's going to do it, and uh, the cover's been designed. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, out in, uh, out in October, and I'm really – I mean, it's, you know, the one mistake I've made is I've left – the gap between my my first book and this book too long and you can see that on a lot of the conversations i have on twitter and facebook and email with people chasing me for when the next book's going to come out so i won't ever make that mistake again i will make sure that i at least do one a year i would love to be full-time like everyone and and then if i was i'm sure i could do three or four a year but i i I have a day job still and uh, while i have that i think the best i can realistically achieve is one a year particularly if there are 120,000 words, as this one's going to be, or above. <laughs> oh, all right, so you've got a little lighter on it this time, at 120. Yeah, I managed to. Well, we say that, yeah. I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's still time, still time. <laughs> okay, now, we, we, we couldn't have you on this podcast without delving into your, your IT, your technical knowledge. And uh, I'm going to start with the website, iansutherland.com, which I think is just uh, splendid. There's, there's so much on here that I think he's... He's a really good example to uh, authors, um, apart from the fact the lovely artwork that just really catches your eye. Now, I think you've used, I, I, I'm a bit nerdy with this stuff, so I dig into code and stuff and have a good look around. But um, I think you've used Thrive Themes for this. Is that correct? I have indeed. And I've specifically through Thrive Themes. The precip- so this is about version, I would being a, I, yeah, being a geek like, <laughs> being a geek like uh, I am, I have managed to, I think I'm now on version four of my website in in two and a half years the first version um i kept a a screenshot once and i think i've got a blog post about it um i did on wordpress.com in fact the first two versions i did on wordpress.com um and even though i'm capable of doing a lot more technical stuff i just i did it that way it was easy i just needed to get it up i thought blogging was the answer to everything in those days so i was blogging and um i hardly blog at all now and so um I created it on on 
WordPress.com and you know use some themes and so on and and then I did a revision of that once I got the once I finally got the um, the first set of book covers I was then able to use some of the, those graphics and create a better looking site but it was still WordPress.com which means it's hosted and you're very limited as to what you can do in customization even simple things like capturing someone's email address whilst I was able to do it from the website there was a uh, there was a convoluted route I had to do go through to make that work just because of their limitations. Um, I eventually um, bit the bullet uh, about a year ago. And this is when I realized, ma- you know, building a mailing list is is paramount, and so, so that was what I wanted to do. So I, I moved on to uh, WordPress.org, which is hosted, so self-hosted, um, a little bit more complicated. Managed to go through the migration process from one to the other, and um, built the website. I used a different theme. In fact, I, I think what prompted me was when Joanna Penn redid her site and she used a particular theme which was designed for indie authors and I I was able to knock up that site on the hosted platform pretty quickly and it looked pretty it looked okay it looked in fact it didn't look a lot different to China's (laughs) except for the books (laughs) Um, and I actually think that's a really good middle ground Uh, so the theme that she uses uh, on a hosted WordPress site is pretty good you know most of the things you want are in there but being me I wanted to go further um, I wanted, I really wanted to maximise how I captured email addresses and um, and have just have proper creative control over it. Um, and so I, I, I don't know why I, I stumbled across Thrive Themes somewhere along the lines, and I think you use them as well. And what I love about Thrive Themes is you. Oh, I was into landing pages. That's what it was. I, I discovered the concept of landing pages, um, and you know before, I, and I couldn't get that onto these websites in an easy way. And, and so, um, and I was using an interim thing, which is great, by the way. Uh, book launch, booklaunch.io, I think is the website. Yeah, I've used yeah, it. Yeah, it's good. really nice, really nice. And uh, but I wanted to migrate from them. Um, they were really sad when I left because I was giving them so much traffic. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, so I wanted to, I wanted the freedom to have a decent website, but then have my own landing pages. And I looked at the cost of lead pages. Is it lead pages? Yeah. Lead pages. Yeah, very expensive. Very yeah. expensive. And so, um, in fact, I did do a trial with them and then I got a refund because it was, I just, it was too much for what I needed. Um, so, and that's when I discovered Thrive Themes. And Thrive Themes for me is great. It gives me everything I want. But then from a design perspective, and I'm no graphical artist, I'm really not. The, the images I use are ones that have been provided me by my cover designer. Um, the, uh, but it gives you the ability to really design pages in a kind of drag and drop interface within within the site um it gets a lot more complicated if you want to use some of the the flash t- features as, as i've done um but um it, it for me yeah a long journey to get there but but thrive themes and the ability to really design the website but also build pretty cool landing pages was was why i've gone with them and I've stuck with them, and and to be honest, they keep releasing new new toys. You know, I'm I'm using one of their new, new toys now with a countdown timer, and um, that works brilliantly. So uh, um, yeah, yeah, love it. This is really sad, but I've got the HTML of your page. I'm looking at this so I can see your plugins because you're also using the Thrive Leads as well, which comes bundled with the package. And that's actually uh, a beautiful uh, thing to use for leads capture, isn't it, to get your email addresses? Um, and I think you look like you're using it across your site. In actual fact. Well, I've gone one step further now. So um, they've now released a, a thing called Thrive Ultimatum. I bought that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is awesome. 
awesome. So if you go on my front page now and it's your first time there, um, you'll see a, a timer that comes in at the top with a countdown till Sunday to get a book for free. And uh, uh, I use that with – I'm linking it with Twitter. I'm doing all sorts of crazy things. Um, but you press on the button and then it pops up with the, um, uh, the form to fill in your email address. But the, the concept around scarcity marketing is to give someone – is you know, is to say – Either you, there's only a few of these things left or you've only got a certain amount of time to do it. And the reason it works so well is if someone fills in the form, they will never see this banner again. And so for them, it really looks like it's only free until Sunday, but it's not. It's free all the time. <laughs> it's a bit naughty. Um, and uh, it's free all the time as long as you sign up. And uh, But people see this and my conversion rate's gone up because I'm using this kind of scarcity approach. You said you started with MailChimp, and now you're using ConvertKit. Uh, this has just recently come on my radar. I was listening to a Pat Flynn podcast, and I think he, he was interviewing somebody about it. Um, it's more of a CRM tool, I believe. Can you tell me you know, why, why it's a good thing to use, what it does? So I switched to ConvertKit also because of Pat Flynn, um, and he was being interviewed on Mark Dawson's uh, podcast, I think, is when I heard all about it. So I went and took a look. Uh, what had happened was I, I'd been using uh, MailChimp for, well, actually, for, for about 18 months and got it to the level where I'm, I'm paying for it because I'm using the automation and I'm over 2,000 subscribers and so on. And so, um, you know, I'm using it to its fullest, but with different books, different websites, and with different um, – the, the problem I found with MailChimp is – Whilst it is quite easy to use, the um, your you end up with subscribers in different lists, and there's no concept of just one subscriber being linked to different uh, things. Okay, you know, different books or whatever, and you could have duplicate. You could be paying for duplicates, and it's just messy. So if I wanted to hit everybody on my mailing list with a with a uh, a newsletter or something, you know, I'd be duplicating it five times and. To, to hit the different lists and it was just became cum cumbersome there are apparently lots of workarounds and ways to clean this up but it it, it requires exporting and re-importing and cleaning everything up it just takes ages um i think by the way i do think uh, mailchimp is by far the the right answer for anyone starting out with mailing lists simply because it's easy and it's free to about 2,000 subscribers um but for me i kind of push it to its limit um I heard about ConvertKit. I don't see it as a CRM marketing tool. I think you're thinking of um, there's another Infusionsoft uh, is more like that. Yes. Um, ConvertKit is, for me, is just a simple, uh, much more simplistic um, email marketing um, solution. They're, if you look at all their own marketing, they're aimed at bloggers. So they don't aim them at authors. They, they kind of aim at bloggers. But the, the use of an author has is exactly the same as a blogger. And I've switched over. Um, and my life, I've just been completely empowered with it. Uh, so I can do everything I can do on, on MailChimp in that I obviously have autoresponders. I can have uh, API integration with um, Twitter. Um, I've got um, newsletters, all of those kind of things. And I've got you know simplistic branding within my emails. Um, so that's all good. But then it will do clever things like um, I once did a survey. I wanted to segment my... Uh, all of my subscribers so that I could tell which ones had or at least told me they'd read my book okay um, or read sorry read which book and so I sent out a little survey and the the idea was they would they would click on something it would take them to a page where they would learn 
So, oh yeah, I, it was the launch of my, I gave them the blurb for my upcoming book. And uh, so to, to read that, they had to, to tell me, have they read just, you know, the, the, the free prequel? Had they read Invasion of Privacy? And so on and so on. Had they read both? Had they not read any? And when they clicked on it, they went through to the, web, to the website and they could see, read the blurb. So it was kind of, and, but what I got is in ConvertKit at the same time, it would automatically tag them within my, within the, the ConvertKit database. And so I've now been able to completely segment my, um, my uh, subscriber base and I can now target them in different ways simply because I know more about them. And, uh, and that goes on and on. It's, it's a really neat feature that I, I really like. Yeah, I'm very interested. I'm keeping my eye on it. And one one thing I should say, incidentally, you're absolutely right about Mailchimp, um, that it's absolutely the right decision for somebody who's just starting to use. But actually, as you are now, when you need to do more challenging things with your lists, you do generally need to move out of Mailchimp into something else, uh, as you have done and as I have done. Um, and also the things that we're talking about here, Thrive Themes, these are not starter level things these are slightly more advanced in it so if you're listening to this thinking blimey you know this is off my over my head now don't worry about that uh, but for people who already have got a web presence this is all really key interesting important stuff because it helps to take your marketing to the next level i must talk to you about twitter ian <laughs> because this <laughs> we, we must fit this in uh, because you've got two twitter accounts uh, and one of those accounts has uh, forty-seven thousand followers and the other one has hundred thousand followers which is quite remarkable just talk me through that because that doesn't come from nowhere no so i i learned early on again I, the just being a bit geeky i suppose i decided that twitter once once my once my daughters explained it to me because they had to and that's the funny thing you know they they explained to me about three years ago because i didn't understand it i understood facebook but i didn't understand and Twitter at the time, you know, following why, who followed who, why. I didn't get it, hashtags, and they had to explain it all to me. And then I started looking at it from an author perspective, and I'm like, okay, I could see that I could get, get the word out about my books. This made sense. And um, so I doubled down on it, and I really focused in on it, and I, you know, I did lots of best practice searching. You know, I looked outside of authors and looked into what other internet marketers were doing with Twitter. Um, and uh, I kind of discovered that there's a bunch of um, techniques that you can use to um, uh, to really get powerful with Twitter, and I started putting them together, and I ended up creating this kind of package, best of, you know, with third-party add-on software that go on top of Twitter. Um, you know, pretty much most people know about Hootsuite, uh, which I've tried, and to schedule tweets. I mean, it's a really simple concept is what if I you know plan all the things I want to tweet about and then schedule them right that's a great idea and uh, tools like Hootsuite and as many others buffer will allow you to do that um, but what if you just want to you know keep doing that and repeat them and repeat them over time but you know within the terms of service of Twitter it doesn't allow you to do that you end up creating very complicated spreadsheets and reloading them in on a regular basis so it wasn't very useful so I ended up working out all the ways and the best tools that I could find to do the kinds of things that I wanted to do on Twitter. And as a result, my reach started to expand. The impact of my tweets was, was growing rapidly. Um, the retweeting was getting great. Um, and my follower count started to increase. That's the most visible thing. Um, and then when I was, I was at a few, uh, you know, author meetups, that kind of stuff. And I would talk about this and, and it was, you know, it was almost like I was talking some kind of, you know, 
magical revealing revealing a secret of life or something and uh so most of them in just why don't you just write this down <laughs> you know create mm -hmm. a book you know you, you you're, you're there's something you're doing here that most of us don't know about and so in the end i did um and i I, uh, I wrote a book called Advanced Author Strategy, Advanced Twitter Strategy, even for authors, and I released that in uh, April last year, I think it was. And um, it, it it just I just literally encapsulated everything I know I knew at the time, sorry, because I've learned more since um, about how to kind of recreate what I've done and using the right tools and and some of the techniques and so on and so on. And uh, I put that out there, and that's been great. I then got um, asked to interview uh, for a video interview. This guy wanted; he was trying to build a kind of a video blog site. So he asked to interview me, and and so he created these uh, interviews, which he put up on YouTube, which I've I've since repurposed and um, created as that's my reader magnet for the book now. So I now on Twitter use those videos for free. 10, 10 very short videos of me talking about some of these techniques on Twitter. And that's now the free thing that you can get to draw you into this world of, of um, using, you know, t taking on this book. So that's what I've done. Um, and it, it's worked really, really well. The, uh, the 100,000 follower account is my fiction author account. It's the one I focus on the most. Um, but to prove that the techniques worked, as I was writing the book, I decided to create a second Twitter account, which is Ian H. Sav, and um, I uh, did that from zero to prove that the techniques work, and there's a screenshot of the date it was created in the book, and it was all about evidence, yeah, and, you know, that's now 47,000 followers, whatever it was you said, um, and it was just done deliberately, but it's also because I, I market to two different audiences as a result of all this, so one audience is people I want to talk to about, you know, my thrillers and, and fiction and, and other good writers and all of those kind of things. And the other target audience is other authors who want to know more about social media marketing, particularly through Twitter. And for me, they're two different um, conversations and therefore and two different messages. So I, and I didn't want to mix, mix it all up into one, hence the reason for having two accounts. And it's worked pretty well. Um, it really has. Uh, and the book, you know, people who read the book absolutely love it. Um, and uh, I've been giving classes on it, um, and so on and so on. So, and I'm, you know, I am looking to take it to the next level. Now, this is interesting because you're into authorpreneur, the, the authorpreneur zone here. And a lot of authors do this. That often nonfiction is a great way of generating fairly fast, frankly, and and quick income. Whereas the books often are a little bit slower. Is that where you're aiming with all of this? Kind of, you know, it's, I look at someone like uh, Nick Stevenson and, you know, he seems to have gone the, the, the full way to the other side now and almost, he's almost, whilst he talks about fiction and selling fiction, he's almost, I think he's almost stopped writing fiction. Um, and I don't want to do that. Um, sorry, Nick, if you have, maybe you haven't stopped writing. I don't know if you have, <laughs> but it seems that way. And He's on a break. I he's think, on a break. Okay, good. Back, so, yeah. <laughs> good. so um, uh, I don't quite want to go that far for me uh the fiction writing is is paramount that's what i that's that's really what i want to do but what i figured out is that there's that i do i i love sharing what i know with other people you know i remember early on right before um i uh i'd even published my first book i'd probably had the first draft off of the editor and i went to my first nervously went to my first author meetup um and that was to do with the alliance of independent authors and it was in a in a 
pub in the back of London, back of King's Cross, I think it was, uh, near London. And, um, uh, you know, and I met other authors and I, I, I was literally learning stuff from people who are further on in the journey from me. And I learned so much from those people. And I've now gone through that, that journey uh, in the same way that you have. And, you know, obviously I've gone off in strange tunnels and I've really, you know, kind of doubled down on certain areas. Uh, um, but this is, this is how I see that I can, I can give back to other authors and, and share some of this because there's no one template that works for everybody, that's for sure. But people pick and choose the bits that, that interest them or they, they think that can work for them. And uh, Twitter's really worked for me. Um, and I'm, you know, I certainly know a lot about it. So if I can share some of that with other people, I'm very happy to do so. Well, I will put the link to your 10 video series on the show notes. I'm just about, I'm just waiting for video 10 to arrive and I'll work through the lot then when I've got them all, you know, one after the other, I'll work through them like that. But um, I think you're certainly doing some really interesting stuff with Twitter. So I'll make that available on the show notes for everybody. Um, I do need to ask you um, about the Alliance of Independent Authors because you've referred to them several times in this interview. Um, I get tremendous value from the Alliance of Independent Authors and I, and I think you've been involved with them longer than I have. Can you just tell me, for people who are new to self-publishing and don't even know about them, what, what the benefit is of, of being involved with the Alliance of Independent Authors? That group is so helpful and empowering. Um, there's so much knowledge they're trying to share. Um, uh, you know, anyone who's coming at this, and I, I remember... Uh, two and a half years ago as I'm, as I'm on this you go on the internet and you try and kind of google what what's the right way to to self-publish um and what what are the steps you need to go through and they tell you know and I went to I ended up joining Ally and there's a private the biggest resource for sure is the private Facebook group and uh you can be totally honest in there and everyone is and you've got so many people just helping other people and it's just such a good that alone is such a great resource you know but then they do things like the relationship they got with ingram spark um you know my the the i've got you know that's how that video came about um they do author meetups um and i i still go to them even though i, I learn less these days i always learn something and I, I i'm able to contribute a lot more i Still, I still go to them um, because it becomes, you know, it makes this whole thing much more personable when you're face-to-face -face, um, meetings with people. So, uh, on the back of London Book Fair this year, they set up a, a day, uh, uh, an evening event afterwards, sponsored by um, ACX and Amazon, I think. And so, you know, there's just lots of ways to meet other people, build relationships, build your network, and uh, and there and learn some of the best practices that are out there. And for me, that's that's the real value final thing then ian we need to find out where we can discover more about you online where are the best places to go so the best place to go my website is ianhsutherland.com and we've talked about that so hopefully people will be interested to see what it looks like um and uh that's on there you'll only find out about my uh my fiction life um and so uh if you are you're going to put it in the show notes anyway but if you're interested in some of the Twitter stuff, and I'm kind of building towards launching a, um, a, a course uh, later this year around this, and I'm going to aim that clearly, squarely at uh, up, uh, people yet to publish who want to build a mailing list and a Twitter following, even ahead of their first book, so that they've actually got uh, an audience to launch to. So I'll be doing that, um, and all of that will be on my other home, which is advancedauthorstrategies.com. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. 
If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. If you're new to self-publishing, you might also like to check out selfpublishingacademy.com, the step-by-step guide to getting your manuscript off your hard drive and into print. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.